Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Deborah A. Dana to the show for part one of their discussion on polyvagal theory and attachment. Part two will be released on Tuesday, February 16th. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Buckwalter, and joining you here from Chaddock. Uh, Today, we are going to be speaking about um, polyvagal theory with Deb Dana. So anybody who's done any reading in recent years um, regarding research application to clinical work, knows about Steve Porges and polyvagal theory. Um, And as a clinician, in terms of the application of that, I think Deb Dana is one of the first names that comes to mind in terms of what do we learn from polyvagal theory in terms of applying it to our clinical work. So Deb is my guest today. I'm going to give you a little background about her before we hop on together for the interview. So Deb is an LCSW and she specializes in treating complex traumatic stress and lectures internationally on ways polyvagal theory informs clinical interactions with trauma survivors. She is also a consultant to the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium in the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University and the developer of Rhythm of Regulation clinical training series, which is another way that she's sharing information about polyvagal theory and clinical work. She is the author of the Polyvagal Theory and Therapy, Engaging the Rhythm of Regulation, Polyvagal Exercises for Safety and Connection, and the developer of the Polyvagal Fit flip chart. Um, And she also uh, co-edited a book with Stephen Porges called The Clinical Application of Polyvagal Theory, The Emergence of Polyvagal Informed Therapies, which that one came out in 2018 by Norton. Um, So Deb is also trained in internal family systems and sensory motor psychotherapy and a variety of other models. And I know that you are really, really going to enjoy this interview today. I think um, many clinicians and other listeners have maybe heard about polyvagal theory but sometimes have struggled a little bit to figure out how to apply it to their day-to-day work with clients. And Deb is the master at helping us be able to do that. So she will be coming right up. Join the Knowledge Center for an experiential workshop designed to support successful engagement of parents in the child therapy process. Karen Doyle Buckwalter will be joined by Daphna Lender for the other half of the equation, engaging parents in child therapy. This two-day workshop on April 28th and 29th will focus on how to identify parents who need more focused work, how to set goals for the parent, and how to help parents initiate repair, and more areas to help the child, parent, and therapist get the most out of the therapy session. Registration is now open. For more information, 
information or to register for the workshop, head to tkcchaddock.org. Well, hello, Attachment Theory and Action listeners. Um, as promised, I have an interview I am about to have with Deb Dana. Deb, thanks so much for being here. I am happy to be here with you today and talk polyvagal theory and attachment. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. So I know, um, I think that you have been such a very important voice about polyvagal theory because, you know, sometimes when we have these ideas that come out of the scientific community, you know, the way they are written about, um, is sometimes hard for clinicians to make the leap to. So, okay, now that I got through this complex article, you know, what, what does that even mean in the therapy room, you know? And, and I think a lot of researchers are the first to say, I'm not a clinician, like, I don't really know, which I think is respectable, of course, but where does it leave us, right? <laughs> right, yes, and, you know, it's interesting because um, I'm, I'm one of those people that I love reading research and I, I love diving in deeply. And then my next question always is, okay, so what do I do with this? You know, and I've always been one to say, oh, let, let's play. Let's figure out what do we do with this, which has been a, you know, a joy for me. And so, you know, I ended up, you know, doing that with polyvagal theory. And, you know, Steve is the first to say, Steve Borges is the first to say, I'm not a clinician. And I've heard um, him say that. Absolutely. And so we make, you know, in, in some ways we make a really lovely team because he's such a beautiful um, scientist, brilliant scientist and researcher. And I then get to take his work and, and translate it, which is, which is such a lovely thing to do in the world, right? Yes. Um, yes. And, and we'll, we'll go over those resources at the end, but, you know, uh, one of the books is Clinical Applications of Polyvagal Theory. You can see I have, like, you know, our listeners can't see, but I have all my little markings and all of that, and I know you have a more recent book that's even more practical application, which I have to say I listen to that on audible and that wasn't a good idea because you know you keep bringing up all these exercises that one can't see so i'm gonna have exactly. to, to yeah. listen to that in a different format so so you have really been making this link between you know polyvagal theory which is a very uh complex theory in many ways but you've been making this link of how we can practically apply this as therapists and it's just really terrific thanks because you know what i think is when we really come down to the basics of polyvagal theory it it is it is um, complex but in some ways it's also pretty simple you know it's not not easy to to then use but it's a pretty simple theory if we think about three organizing principles which is where i ended up just you know i'm a clinician i work with clinicians i want to be able to talk with clients three principles we have hierarchy new reception co-regulation and if we just understand those then you know we're kind of good to go because you know the, the nervous system is at the foundation of everything we're doing it's it's the it's where everything in our daily life begins in the nervous system and so for me it only made sense that that we clinicians understand how this is at work in our own system first because we have to be regulated in order to work with another person and then how is it at work um, with our clients and how can we help them become active operators or their own system 
Yes, yes, yes. And and I'm so eager to talk about that, those three avenues. And um, but I, I, I also want to ask you um, first, you know, um, I think a lot of clinicians and, and we have parent listeners also um, in looking at um, the nervous system, they may be familiar with fight, flight, freeze, you know, and cortex, midbrain, back brain. And, and um, I think some people are asking themselves, um, how is this different? Or is that refining that? Or uh, what, you know, so, and, and I know you have answers to that. <laughs> um, and so I would just like to start there as like, just kind of a common basic understanding that is finally out there because of the work of many other people, you know, how does polyvagal theory refine or even change somewhat that idea that there are these states of fight, flight, freeze? Great. That's a great place to start. Um, I think what um, Steve has given us in polyvagal theory is this understanding that we have these these three states, three basic states that we move through all the time. Um, and it's polyvagal because he really identified that the parasympathetic system is not simply rest and digest. Um, we always have thought about parasympathetic sympathetic, where sympathetic is that fight flight and parasympathetic was rest and digest and his work really has given us this this um, updated view of the nervous system that it is yes parasympathetic sympathetic but parasympathetic has these two pathways one being social engagement connection communication where we do come into this is the you know the, the place where we have safe secure attachment right yes and then dorsal vagal which is the other part of this lovely vagus nerve and the other part of the parasympathetic system is the part that takes us into disappearing, um, becoming invisible, shutting down, collapsing, even dissociating at its most you know, intense form. And before Steve really documented this and, and developed this, we didn't have any way in our work with clients to help them understand the difference between fight flight and um, what used to be called submit, which is a, you know, a, a sort of a, a terrible word to use, right? So we call it collapse or disappear. And we had no way of helping them understand this is your biology at work. And one of the gifts for, for all of us, for, for all, all of us humans who are trying to understand our nervous system, when we're introduced to these pathways, we begin to understand how our biology is working in service of our survival. And then it takes away the, the, the moral story that we so often put on our behaviors. It just simply becomes your biology has enacted one of these responses. So mm -hmm. that's, I think, the, one of the beauties of understanding polyvagal. And the other is that understanding that these three places of connection, mobilization, and disconnection happen every day, all the time, in either intense ways or nuanced ways for all of us. And that that's normal and that's okay, that the, the goal is not to always be in that regulated state. That's an unreachable, unreasonable goal. The goal is to know where I am and know when I've moved into a survival state, whether it's fight, flight, or shut down, disappear, that I know I've, I've moved there and I know my way back to ventral. You know, I call ventral home, so I know my way home. 
right? I can find my way home again. That's the measure of well-being. It's not that we're always in that safe, regulated home. It's that we know how to come back there when we dysregulate. I just love how you're speaking about this. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, it feels like I left a scientific lab and I'm having a cozy fireside chat about <laughs> you know, That's great. That's so good. Well, I think another term that I would like you to speak about that was really, a, you know, really practice changing, maybe life changing, um, this term of neuroception. Because, you know, I think that because a lot of my work is with traumatized children um, and, and, and adults, um, but there was this idea, that's true, this idea of hypervigilance and people are always scanning the environment for safety and, you know, we would have kids at Chadak where like the slightest change, someone's car moving, a slight change in someone's outfit, you know, noticing every little thing. And we would talk about, you know, hypervigilance and how it distracts from attention and all, all the different things that that does. But I feel like as in studying polyvagal theory, it's like, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We're all constant. Like it's not, we're all constantly scanning for safety. That, that started, I mean, I guess I would, if somebody asked that, I would have known that maybe, but I feel like polyvagal theory like really brought that forward, that that's just something that we're all doing. Um, so if you could kind of talk about that and the term neuroception, which is such a beautiful it is a beautiful word, isn't it? I love that word. I know. And Steve, Steve created that word because there was no word that talked about this nervous system experience. Perception talks about your cognitive brain experience, but this is a nervous system experience. So I love neuroception. It's like, to me, it's neuro for nervous system, inception for perception, and you put them together. It's, it's lovely. And I love how you, you know, came to that place of, of knowing we're all doing this all the time because what's happening is we are always having an autonomic nervous system conversation with the world always you know and and neuroception has three pathways that it listens to in every micro moment it listens inside outside in between so it's listening inside your body to what's going on in your muscles your your systems your viscera your digestion it's listening outside in the environment around you and it's listening between it's listening to what's happening between nervous systems you know so when you think about um, how we respond to that what happens is there these things are brought in as either cues of safety or, or unsafety right and so for me I've come up with a basic equation where there simply have to be more cues of safety than unsafety in order for me to feel safe enough to move forward and engage with the world and when that balance shifts I go into a survival response because my nervous system says it's not safe enough neuroception has brought in too many cues of unsafety or danger and when we start to look at it this way then we can begin to identify what are those right what so you were talking about some of the kids what what are the cues of danger you know a loud noise something moving um, something different maybe something I'm wearing maybe my tone of voice these are all the ways the nervous system is is listening for safety or danger. And the lovely part about neuroception is that when something shifts, you can feel it. Your nervous system as a clinician feels that happen. And you can stop right there and you can say, oh, it feels like 
something just happened. And sometimes it's a cue of danger and you can say, I wonder what the cue of danger was because it's our job to explicitly name those. Sometimes it feels like we came into a little more connection and we want to stop there and say, oh, what was the cue of safety that allowed us to come a little closer? because we want to identify those. The cues of unsafety, we want to reduce or resolve, while the cues of connection, we want to bring more of. So neuroception is this lovely, ongoing, moment-to-moment conversation that your nervous system is having with the world, and I love thinking about that way. I love thinking as we move through the world, we are sending, we are broadcasting, what's happening for us. We're broadcasting cues of safety or unsafety, and we're also receiving them from the world around us, from, mm-hmm. from people, from nature, from pets, from all these places. It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating to think that this is happening to every human all the time. Mm. Yes. You know, this is um, a little side note on that. Um, this podcast won't release for a little while, but I was thinking about when you were talking, you know, that feeling that shift and, and I know, and we'll talk about this more too, that you advocate, like bringing it up, like asking and, and saying, you know, what caused that. And suddenly I'm, as you're saying that I'm realizing why I'm not liking telehealth <laughs> because, because it's, it's, it's for me, it's harder to sense when that's happening mm-hmm. yes and and you know f- for me you know telehealth and for the uh, clinicians that i you know do consultation with it's been a fascinating time because it really <clears throat> is inviting us to have uh, an autonomic map with our clients because I can't sense, you know, I can see, but I can only see you from the waist up. I don't know what your hands are doing, your feet are doing, you know, and, and some clients want to turn video off and only be heard, which is fine. But with a map, I don't have to feel in the same way. I can simply say, Oh, so where are you on your map right now? And that gives us the information. So again, Mm -hmm. I'm inviting you to, to, to understand and notice for yourself and then share that with me and if I feel something even through this you feel when something happens and I can stop and name that oh I just my nervous system just felt something yeah and I'm really careful to not say what I think it is but boy my nervous system just felt something and I wonder can you tell me what happened on your end right I might say on my end it felt like there was a little um, um, disconnection that happened where what happened on your end Right. So we're, we're just the, the, the thing we are is curious, right? I'm never making an assumption about what's happening in another nervous system. I'm curious about it. And I think this is a lovely way in this world of telehealth that who knows how long we're going to be in this. It's one of the ways to really engage um, and, and bring these cues into explicit awareness. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, just in terms of leaping over to attachment theory, um, specifically, um, I know there's a quote, I believe attributed to Dr. Porges, but if it's your quote, please correct me, but um, this uh, uh, safety is the treatment. Yeah, 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 that is, yeah. And I love it. 
And when you said, you know, it's complex, but it's simple, you know, you know, I think of that quote, but I've all, that quote has also been important to me in terms of attachment theory, since attachment theory is, you know, all about safety. Um, the attachment system is frequently activated as a, when there's danger. Um, that's not the only time, of course, but, and, you know, all of our talk and Bowlby's writing about a safe haven and, um, secure base allows us to explore the world and that the therapist must create that for the client to explore. Um, so talk to me just about safety as the treatment and how you see polyvagal and attachment theory intersecting. Ugh, I've been dying to ask you that question. <laughs> um, right, here we go. So yeah, another quote that Steve has, which I really love, is talking about that your nervous system state is a preamble for attachment. Yes. And I think that's a really lovely way to think about it. It is. Our attachment emerges from the the ways our nervous systems are are met by another nervous system. So if I come into the world and I'm welcomed by a regulated nervous system, then I start moving into this place where I can have a secure attachment. But if I come into the world and I'm welcomed by a dysregulated nervous system, I don't get that experience of being co-regulated with someone who is who is safe to my nervous system to say nothing of the rest of me but to my nervous system and you know so these these experiences of of co-regulation as we know um, build the um, platform for then self-regulation Mm -hmm. Right. And, mm -hmm. and if we don't get that experience of co-regulation, we don't get to build that secure, safe attachment, then we have to self-regulate instead because there's no one to co-regulate with. And when we self-regulate, you know, we, we move into these um, insecure attachment styles, right. You know, or even the disorganized attachment at the, at the far end, because, you know, with, with that, you know, um, anxious, you know, ambivalent places, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I have to know what's happening over there in you. And so my sympathetic system is often, you know, in that needy place of trying to, trying to know what's going on over there. Um, in the um, avoidance, you know, attachment world, I often think about, which probably was more my style actually um, growing up, um, is, is that I can't depend on you, so I have to self-regulate to depend on me, but it doesn't come out of a place of, of feeling nourishing. Again, it's a self-regulation out of survival. And so for me, my system is, is much more um, of, a, of a pull towards dorsal, towards disconnect, um, and other people who have more of that sympathetic pull towards towards I have to I have to I have to that that reach out connect is another um, you know nervous system way of trying to come into attachment because co-regulation is a biological imperative which simply means we don't survive without it mm -hmm. right and so we we kind of understand how we form these different attachment styles because we have to be in attachment with another human being to survive. Mm -hmm. And so if, if this is what I have, if I have a, a unpredictable or um, unavailable caregiver, my nervous system has to create a way for me to survive. 
And often that is through the self-regulating um, capacities that, you know, reach out when they can and depend on myself because, um, and then what it does is it creates patterns of protection in my nervous system rather than patterns of connection. So we actually have these pathways of protection that get resourced rather than the pattern of connection that involves social engagement and and, and feeling safe with another person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And I mean, I think in, in your more recent book, you know, I, I um, have some notes here that, that I really liked about this where you talk about you know, how we are met in our early relationships shapes our attachments. So, so, so like that, you know, I think internal working model that Bowlby wrote about seeing, you know, at that time seemed almost more cognitive, like how we think of the world, you know, and this is really um, taking this more to how our nervous system was shaped by these early interactions is what I was, you know, getting out of what you were saying. Would that be right? It it really is. Because, you know, if we talk about neuroception again, it's neuroception Mm -hmm. that's at work here. Neuroception is where it all begins. And if I'm met with a welcoming, warm, regulated other, then my neuroception is bringing in cues of safety and I long to move forward into connection, right? It's a, it's a lovely experience, but if my neuroception is, ooh, that person does not feel safe or is unpredictable or unavailable, not dependable, my neuroception brings me cues of, of danger and I you know, move into a state of protection. Once I've moved into one of these states of protection, I can no longer biologically connect. It's not that I don't want to. The longing is still there, but my biology does not support safe connection. So then I have to figure out different ways of getting my needs met. And that's what we see in, in our adults who have had a, a complex trauma history. And, and we see in our kids who are living in systems that, that can't meet their nervous system where it needs to be met and support them. So as you're talking about this, there's also a lot of talk about the amygdala and, and how that scans and, and how that relates. So could you share a little bit how polyvagal theory yeah. relates to that work? Sure. The, the nervous system is a subcortical system, but it has projections that connect to the, um, to the amygdala and it has projections that connect to the cortex. Yes. So if we, it, so if we think, think about the, 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 um, ventral vagal system, the system of social engagement, which is what we're, you know, really wanting to have alive and, and well online. Um, 80% of the information comes from the body to the brain through that pathway. 80% is, an, is a body to brain pathway. 20% is a return from the brain enacting a, a response. So 20% is the story the brain makes up. And the amygdala is, is you know, getting, you know, cues from neuroception. And when those cues are cues of, of unsafety, either danger or life threat, the amygdala sounds the alarm, right? You know, mm-hmm. I call the amygdala the smoke detector in the brain. Mm-hmm. 
going to be up, you know, and then there we go. We're, we're now our, our state changes. And once our state changes, the capacity to move through the world and engage with others is impacted. So it, it starts with your state is how I like to say it starts with your state. Starts with your state. Yeah. yeah. Yes. You know, another term that's been floated before we get to social engagement system, which is like, that's going to be like a key part of this conversation. Yeah, right. of course. Yeah. Um, but there's another term that's being thrown around and um, fawning. And, and um, I think one of the dangers of being a clinician and trying to understand science is we tend to be much less precise, of course. Um, but what that sometimes leads to is the definition and, and meaning of these terms just sort of expand. You're shaking your head. You know what I'm talking about. Listener, she, she, she's endorsing this. And it, it gets kind of so far off that it's like, you know, that's not even really what that is. And I'm not even sure that's a useful way to use that word can happen. So do you have any comments about that? Yeah, I've had a number of emails over the past, you know, several months asking about fawning. And I have to say, for me, even that word, um, um, my nervous system goes, no, you know, even the word fawning is, 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 uh, a cue of danger to my nervous system. Um, and I do ask people, I say, so what are you trying to describe when you were describing fawning? I don't know what that is. You know, I know what a dorsal vagal disappeared, become invisible, collapse response is. That I understand. I, I don't even use the word submit. I think that's not a word because submit implies, you know, some sort of, 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 of an intention or, or there's a meaning connected there. The nervous system is simply taking you to a place. It's the place of last resort where you're going to, um, you know, survive by um, disappearing, right? I, I think you know, there's been some interesting talk recently about the word appeasement. And appeasement is a much better word for me because appeasement for me talks about an active use of um, social engagement in a way that helps you survive. So appeasement feels very much like a, a, a survival response that is active. <clears throat> and I think, you know, for, for people, the research really is beginning around this with people who have been um, held hostage for a long time or, or kidnapped and survived or found a way to survive a long-term um, violent situation. And that appeasement is this active use of their social engagement system for a purpose that's not, you know, this, this ventral, this regulated inspired social engagement, but it's co-opting it for survival. That I think makes sense to me. This fawn is a, is a word that I just don't find useful in my work. And I find most survivors when you use that word really are, are, um, um, you know, offended by it. It's just not a word that I think um, is useful for us. So 
Yeah, I like what you said about we we clinicians sort of get, you know, we 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 see something and we think, oh yes, and then we make it really big, which sometimes is okay, and sometimes we need to come back to being a little more precise about what are we talking about here. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Well, I see we are at the bottom of the hour. I am loving this conversation and can't wait to continue for part two. So, um, listeners, we will be returning next week with Deb Dana, continuing um, to talk about polyvagal theory, how it relates to attachment, and how it relates to clinical work. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 